scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51. Let's hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. All right, Um, let me pray for us, and we'll dive into Psalm 51. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your steadfast love and your kindness to us. We thank you for your mercy, O God. We thank you, Lord God, that you don't treat us according to what our sins deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. God, we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. We pray that you would... Teach us, Lord God, how to repent, Lord God, and we pray, Lord, that our joy would be full because of it. So we just ask for your grace, we ask for your mercy, we ask for your power by your Spirit to help us preach the Word, to listen to the Word as it's taught to our hearts. Lord, let your Word by your Spirit pierce our hearts and our souls, Lord God, so that we would have new life created in us. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me ask you this. What is the most important qualification for gospel ministry? The most important qualification for gospel ministry is knowing and practicing true repentance. There is one way above all other ways to know whether or not you truly know God, whether or not you are repentant. Do you have a repentant heart about you? To know God and to show God alike. If you are not a repentant person, you simply don't know God. And if you do not know God, you don't know what true love is, you don't have a ministry, and you don't have salvation. David showed repentance. And if you look, I think it's verse 13, he says, Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. David was a man after God's own heart. And it wasn't because he lusted after Bathsheba, another man's wife committed adultery with her and then impregnated her. It wasn't because then he murdered Uriah, her husband, to cover it all up. As atrocious as those sins were, David was still counted by God as a man after God's own heart. Why? How? Because he was repentant. And God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. God is more impressed with your humility than with your civility. God is attracted to true brokenness. And if you fit that category, God will never, ever turn you away if you come to him through Christ. Hallelujah. So why this sermon? I chose this sermon because it really has more to do with me and what God's doing in my own heart. As I was finishing up my certification to become a biblical counselor, my counseling advisor assigned me some reading, a book by Thomas Watson called The Doctrine of Repentance, said you need to, you need to tighten up on that in your understanding. I read the book, and at first I thought, pridefully so, I can think of a million other books that I should read to increase my understanding on this or that. Repentance, I kind of got that one down. I know what the Bible says about it. I started reading the book, and I started to see that I had a lot to learn. I remember a story that Tony Dungy told. For most of you, you have no idea who Tony Dungy is. He's an NFL player and coach. He was picked up by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the late 1970s. And at that time, the Steelers were a powerhouse, a dynasty. And as Tony entered the team, he wondered, what was the secret to their success? He discovered that it was very simple, in fact, that they had perfected the basics, the fundamentals of the game, better than anybody else. Now, we should learn the lessons that sports teaches us 
Actually, Scripture tells us to pay attention to the athlete and give thought to those things because they actually transfer to our spiritual life as well. Here's the lesson. Don't think that you can graduate from the basics and the fundamentals of the faith. Don't ever think that you graduate from those. Don't think that because you understand the subject of repentance that you're practicing it as well as you should. J.C. Ryle had this to say in his, uh, in his book, Thoughts for Young Men. Great book, by the way. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse. Hardens our hearts, it blunts the edge of our conscience, and actually increases our evil inclination. It increases our desire and our taste and our thirst for sin. Every fresh act of sin lessens our fear, it lessens our remorse. It hardens our hearts, it blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. I'm going to give you a little bit of, I'm going to give you an illustration here. Imagine with me, if you will, that a monster approaches your house. You chase the monster away from your house, and at first you are so repulsed by the monster that you chase it straight out of sight, but it keeps coming back. Now you know what it looks like, the monster that is. You know what it looks like, and you aren't as shocked by it the next time it comes back. So you chase it to the end of the yard, and you think, well, that's good enough. And pretty soon, you're okay with it if it just stays in the garage, and before you know it, it's in your house. And before you know it, you get used to living with it. Sin can be like this. If we're not careful, over time, sin just keeps coming back. And coming back and fighting against it can be tiring. So we let it on our property, but every time we do this, our hearts get hardened, we feel less remorse for our sin, and less joy in God because it blinds us to his glory. And thus, for my own sake, and for the sake of our collective joy in God, let's press into these fundamentals of the faith this fundamental of the faith, the doctrine of true repentance. Now, before we go any further, I want to invite us to think about maybe a definition of repentance. Let's start there. What is repentance? And this is from Thomas Watson. It's not the Bible or anything like this, but this is a good, faithful definition. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit. So it's coming from God by His Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So it has to do with an inner conviction of the inner being and an outward expression of change, a turning away. We should also say that repentance is the first step for an unbeliever of Jesus Christ. How are you to be saved? Repent and believe in the gospel. As it says in Scripture, confess your sins and believe in the forgiveness of Christ. Repentance is also an ongoing thing. It marks the life of faith of the true believer in Christ. It's a one-time thing. You repent of your sins to get into the kingdom. It's also an ongoing thing. 
You never stop, actually, in the pattern of repentance as a believer. It's something that we practice over and over again. Now, Thomas Watson, in his book, um, The Doctrine of Repentance, outlines six characteristics. He says these six. I only have five on this hand, so I'll have to go like this. Um, Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, turning away from sin. Now, I thought, well, I'll take these six and see if I can see them in Psalm 51. And I think you pretty easily can see all of these illustrated in David's confession and his repentance in Psalm 51. So that's what I want to do for the majority of our time here. Let's just go through David's life, David's prayer, David's repentance here, and point out how we see these six characteristics. And I'll try to say a few things about them. So number one, David has the sight of sin. Knowing God brings the sight of sin. David yields to God's judgment of what is evil and what is not. You see, he says, I have done what is evil in your sight. And this is to say, I have done what is evil by your standards. Now, there are competing views on what is evil and what isn't, right? Some people think that it is evil to murder a baby. By the way, I myself in this church is in that category. And the reason why we're in that category is because this is the way God sees it. God has sight. And now we have sight because we know God. And we see it as evil. But some people, on the other hand, it is evil to withhold the right to murder a baby. We can't both be right. Obviously, oh, I'm sorry, David orients himself upon God's sight. What does God see and what does God think? And for David, God is the one who gets to decide this. We have sight because God has sight. And now we see things as God sees them. Now, David needed help. This is the second point that I can talk about this and how David comes to his sight of sin. David needed help to see his sin, didn't he? Not just from God, well, ultimately from God, but how does David, if you remember, how does David actually come to the knowledge of his sin? How does he gain sight of his sin? He was blinded to the fact that he had committed adultery and murdered a man until Nathan came along. Remember that story? And Nathan actually speaks to him in a parable. We see how God's sight is sometimes achieved through other people. If you are in God's family by believing in Christ, you are dependent upon your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you see to help you see yourself, to help you see yourself in relationship to God. Another point that we can make of this, David's sight, is that true repentance requires us to identify specific sins. David mentions blood guiltiness, referring to his murder. He murdered Uriah. Now, you might say, well, he doesn't mention anything about adultery in Psalm 51. Yeah, he doesn't really. But what is important is that specific sins were identified to David, and we know this. 
we know that David was hit hard with clarity by Nathan and ultimately by God. And David had a very clear understanding of what he had done. Now, we can apply this to our lives together, can't we? Oftentimes, our idea of repentance involves really vague confessions of sin. I think you guys know what I'm talking about here. Now, don't hop on Facebook and start communicating your dirty secrets to the world. Of course not. But you need at least some people in your life to be vulnerable with. The more vulnerable you are, the more specific you must be. I hear a lot of this. How's the battle against sin going? Better this week. It's getting better. Okay, I'll keep praying for you. That is not true repentance. And you should not expect to... You, you, I'm sorry, you shouldn't expect to experience the joy of God's salvation if this is your understanding of repentance. In some ways, you're lying to yourself and you're lying to other people as well. And I understand that you're not going to spill your guts to every single person. But is there someone that you can be raw with? Is there someone who you're dealing with the nastiness of sin in your life? And are you practicing it with anyone true biblical repentance? Number two, we talked about David's sight of sin. We're going to talk about how he shows true sorrow for sin. Just because someone is sorrowful, now mark this, just because someone is sorrowful doesn't mean that they are repentant. It is possible to be very sorrowful and still not repentant. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that there are two kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and then there's worldly sorrow. I read a story about two different men who had ruined their marriages because of their pornography addiction. Both were weeping loudly before the counselor and before their spouses but only one was truly repentant, and only one actually was able to salvage their marriage. What was the difference? One was sorry for the consequences that he would endure, and one was sorry for the way that he offended God with his sin. One had godly sorrow that leads to salvation with no regret while the other one had worldly sorrow leading to death. Only godly sorrow leads to true repentance. And how do we see godly sorrow in David in Psalm 51? Well, he's sorry for his sin. He knows that it offends God. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you see this? We also see hatred of sin here, too. I'm going to jump down to number five. We see hatred of sin. How do we see David's hatred of sin? True sorrow, true hatred of sin. Well, I think like this. What does sin do? It robs God of his glory. 
And what does David want? Why does David want to be restored? Why does David want to be forgiven of God? Isn't it so that he could declare his praise? To um, sing aloud of his righteousness and declare his praise? I think it says that in verse 16 or 17. I can't remember now. I should have marked it here. He wants to sing aloud of his righteousness and declare your praise. Now, here's something that we should understand. Sin and God's glory are always in tandem with each other. And you cannot love sin and God's glory at the same time. They're they're diametrically opposed to each other. And if you love your sin, you cannot love God's glory, in that moment at least. And here we see David loving God's glory. He wants to declare the praise of God. And I think that shows a hatred of sin. You might say, God is holy. You might come to the... All of you, I think, would affirm, yes, God is holy. And here's the thing. Satan knows this too. But he doesn't care about God's glory. And those are two different things. And I wonder, and I invite you to examine yourself and ask yourself if you're caught in this rut. Do you know that God is holy? But maybe you're indifferent to God's glory. Maybe you don't care about God's glory. Maybe that isn't the defining thing. When when your feet hit the floor in the morning, I want God's glory. I understand life is hard and it's a grind. Maybe not every single morning, but generally speaking, is your life characterized by a desire to see God glorified? You may know God is holy, but do you care about his glory? And if not, you may lack true repentance. Another way that we see David's sorrow for sin, and that is godly sorrow, is that he accepts the consequence of his sin. He accepts it. And he doesn't try to make excuses for why he did what he did. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Those are consequences And he's not saying, oh, these consequences, take them away from me. No. He doesn't complain about the broken bones. In fact, he sees how God is using it and working in it and through it. And he sees that God has a purpose for the punishment, and he starts to look for it. He surrenders himself to God. You know that your sorrow is a godly sorrow if you are willing to accept God's consequences, no matter how harsh they may be, and allow them to run their course in you. Okay, so that's number two. David shows sorrow for sin. Number three, David confesses his sin in faith. And I add this part, in faith. Of course, I mean, it's kind of like, a, like a, 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 a redundant statement. All confession, true confession, is done in faith. But I want to add that on there so that we understand true confession, true repentance and true confession is done in faith. How do we see faith? Well, I think Jordan stole my manuscript because he, he made the same point that I did. He doesn't try to do penance. 
David is not trying to do penance in Psalm 51. What do I mean by penance? Well, on the one hand, there's two, I guess I'm going to point out two sides to the penance. On the one hand, he's not self-loathing. And on the other hand, he's not trying to be self-righteous, doing good deeds and doing good things. So let's talk about the self-loathing part. Do we see David self-loathing? No, we don't. David doesn't go on and on about how evil he is. He doesn't get stuck on himself. He turns to God. You see this in Psalm 51? This is, this is part of, this, this, you kind of have to read between the lines. This is something you have to become observant for. Notice how David is always turning himself towards God. That takes faith. Pay attention to this. Self-deprecation is really easy. Self-deprecation, to, 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 to self-loathe yourself, to, to self-insult yourself, to, to talk about how horrible and bad you are. That is actually, in some ways, it's really easy to do. And in some ways, I think it's almost rewarded in reform circles. Why? Because it shows that I understand total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity. I'm so bad. I'm so evil. I'm so utterly incapable of doing anything good. All those things might be true, but do you realize that this kind of self-loathing can actually become, I'm not saying it does or will, but it can become a form of pride and self-righteousness that ultimately says, I may be acceptable if I can just prove to God how sinful I know myself to be. Believer in Christ, you may know that you are a terrible sinner, but you have confidence You have confidence, as David does, to approach God and find mercy. You have confidence that you will find mercy, that you have the right in Christ to approach God and find mercy from him. So be aware of your sin, yes. But also go to God in faith and in confidence. Confess your sin with the confidence that I can go to God and I will find mercy from him. This is the way that David gets pulled out of the rut of just self-loathing. You see his chin is up, going to God, knowing on the one hand, yes, I'm a sinner. But yes, I'm going to be accepted. He confesses in faith. And on the other hand, you see that he doesn't seek salvation by doing penance through self-righteous works. You see this? David says, you don't delight in sacrifices or I would give it. Hey, if there was like a code that I could just punch in here, if I could do this and that and I could just do good deeds, if I could just go to church and if I could just tithe and if I could just serve in the nursery or serve as a greeter and do all these things and round up for conservation. If you go to Cabela's, round up for needy, hungry kids. Don't you just love that when you go to a restaurant and they ask you, do you want to round up for starving children? No, I don't. (laughs) You flash your WWJD (laughs) bracelet, storm out of the store. Going out to restaurants now seems such a moral dilemma. But David doesn't point to his good deeds. And he doesn't try to, to, to make himself acceptable to God. He doesn't rest 
in his goodness or in his good deeds or sacrifices. He says, hey, you know what? If there was a code to this, if there was a way I could just kill a bull and sacrifice it on your altar and we're good, I would do that. There isn't that. There's contriteness, there's brokenness, and that's what pleases God. So he doesn't try to self-loathe himself into favor with God, and he doesn't try to self-righteous his way into God's favor and correct his sin and earn salvation. He's completely, utterly just laid bare. And I just want to point this out about Christianity, brothers and sisters. Do you see the glory of Christianity, of what the Bible actually says at this point? On the one hand, David is totally confident that he can go to God. And on the other hand, he's completely humble. He's not arrogant at all. How do you kill arrogance and still maintain this confidence that I have the right to go to the Creator God? It's amazing. If you think about those two things, they shouldn't go hand in hand. We even see these with celebrities or people that have lots of power. When they're humble, we're like, oh my goodness, they're actually humble. That attracts us to them because they have great power, but they're also humble. Those two things don't go together a lot. And here in Christianity, it gives you the license to be completely humbled to the core but also confident that I can go to the living God with confidence that he'll accept me. It's amazing. And on the other hand, too, you can also point out, he can be completely honest with himself. Do you see how honest Christianity allows yourself to be? But it's not honesty in a, in a totally demoralizing, despairing way. Because here's one of the reasons why people aren't honest with themselves. Why they just want to do good deeds to cover it all up. Because they don't want to go there. They don't want to go to the depths of their heart because they're afraid what they might find. You know, I heard this statement that said, uh, most people are really good, they're masters of self-deception. We're really good at self-deceiving ourselves into thinking that, hey, I'm not as bad as I really am. I do good things. I help people out. I, I check off all the moral boxes. I'm pretty good. David and Christianity allows us to go into the depths of our being and say, you know what? I'm not very good. It's pretty dark down here. This is the closet that you never want to go into. You just keep stuffing things in there for years, and you don't want to approach that closet because you're afraid what you're going to find there. Christianity gives you the opportunity to be honest with yourself, completely honest, but at the same time, completely hopeful. You can be completely honest, and you can be completely hopeful that God is going to accept you, that God is going to renew you and transform you and deal with all the gunk. That's amazing. There's no, really, if you think about it, Christianity is the only, it's the only religion, it's the only system that really allows you to be you. Otherwise, what are the alternatives? None of the alternatives are very good. Any other system of thought, any other belief system doesn't let you be honest. It forces you to throw up a facade. It forces you to self-deceive. 
This is a beautiful thing. So David confesses his sin, and he confesses his sin in faith. He also accepts, accepts responsibility for it. I made this point already, but I also want to point this out. In sin did my mother conceive me, he says. What is he saying? He's saying, I have a sin nature that I was born with. But you notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, why would God find me guilty? It's not my fault. I didn't ask to be born this way. It was because of my upbringing, you see. It was because of this or that or this experience or my family line. And that's why I give in to lust and that's why I do the things that I do. Our culture is filled with this. Our psychologized mind is filled with, just look to your past. You can find something back there to blame. David reaches into his past. He goes as far back as he possibly can go. To his birth, I was conceived in sin. But you know what he's also saying? But I sinned. I did it. I lusted after Bathsheba. I committed adultery with her. I chose to kill Uriah. Not Mariah. Definitely not Mariah. (laughs) I did it. This is amazing. It's the heart of a true penitent. David shows true repentance. He's completely honest with himself. He has a good grasp of who he is. He has a good grasp of his sin nature and his problem. But he also says, yeah, but I did it, God. I lost it. And I am sorry. Um, Number four, David is ashamed of his sin, and he turns from his sin and begs for transformation. I'm going to double these up. Number four and number six. How do we see shame? How do we see that David is ashamed of his sin? Well, let me distinguish between guilt and shame. This is really helpful for me. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. Maybe I've said this already. But guilt says, guilt says I've, I've done a bad thing. I broke a rule. I broke a law. Guilt says, I've done a bad thing. Shame says, I am a bad thing. Guilt says, I've done a dirty thing. Shame says, I am a dirty thing. And with that in mind, you'll see the language that is shot through Psalm 51. You see David saying, wash me thoroughly. He knows he's dirty. He knows his garments are stained. Cleanse me from my sin. Go through, here's an exercise for you. Go through Psalm 51 and just count how many references and words there are that refer to something of cleaning or dirty. And every time you see that, you think, he he knows the shame that sin brings. He understands the shame that sin brings. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me, what? A clean heart. Why? Because I'm dirty. I'm dirty to the core. Sin has made me dirty and filled me with shame and covered me with shame. And you see the struggle here. He's wearing a garment. He's out at a dinner party. 
and his garments are completely stained. And he's scrubbing, and he's trying to get the stains out, and he cannot get them out. How can I deal with my shame? This begs the question, how do we deal with our shame and the dirtiness of sin? And the reality is this, apart from God's salvation in Christ, everyone is shameful and dirty. Everyone has garments that are stained and ugly. And no matter how hard you scrub, you cannot get them out. So what are we to do? And I think this points us to Christ. And nobody can be clean but in Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ on the cross took your garments of shame. He took your sin upon you. He took the shame upon himself. And he robed you with a beautiful garment of righteousness. Hallelujah. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. If not for Christ, brothers and sisters, and his cleansing of sin, there is no way to be clean from the filth of sin and the shame that it brings. But in Christ, you are cleansed from all impurity and all unrighteousness. And then how do we see him turning and transformation? We see his shame. We also see him turning to God. Well, I think one of the high points of the psalm, perhaps the center of it, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. True repentance wants real transformation, and real transformation happens in the inner being, at the core of who you are. David doesn't say, oh God, I promise, I swear it, I pinky swear, that I'll never do that again. Just let me off the hook this time, restore me, and I'll never do it again, I promise you, God. David is far more realistic about how deep his sin nature runs inside his heart. And he isn't afraid to admit it. And he isn't afraid to seek the help that he needs. You see, David has a community group leader and a counselor, Nathan. But he needs more. He needs God. And he needs the God of creation. The God who creates and recreates. Perhaps this verse should read, Recreate in me a clean heart, O God. You see, God's creation was good. It was good. But sin ruined it. And now we need to be recreated in Christ. Everybody needs to be recreated in Christ. David needs more than moralism. He needs recreation. And he needs it from the creator, God. The God who strips us down to nothing and then recreates in us a clean heart. The God who washes and cleanses. A God who creates and renews and upholds. 
the God who delights in truth and teaches wisdom to the secret heart, the living God who delivers us from our guilt and restores our joy. So some concluding thoughts. I want us to seek our joy. This is a sermon, ultimately. It's been a little somber because we're talking about sin. But I want to turn the corner here and say, this is about our joy. And I started to realize in my own heart the different ways that I've made peace with my sin and the ways that perhaps it's killing joy in God for me. Restore unto me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. True repentance is the pathway to joy and God's salvation. Tolerated sin is like junk food that builds up in the arteries of your faith so that your joy in God is clogged. And I want to commit this, I want to, I want to submit this to you. you. Maybe you don't have a big sin in your life like David had a big sin in his life. This is a big moment for David. But I wonder, are there a bunch of little ones that you've kind of just let go over the years that have kind of just been building up and clogging up your system? Maybe there's people in your life, I know I've been here recently, Maybe there's people in your life who you wonder, did I sin against them when I was angry with them, this or that? Probably not. You can think of a million different excuses as to why you shouldn't go to somebody and say, you know what, I sinned against you, and I'm sorry. Can you not think of a million reasons not to have that conversation? Well, I'll tell you what, you start piling those up over the years, and pretty soon, yeah, Remorse starts to get deadened. Your conscience starts to get blunted. And God seems distant. And your joy might start to wane. Maybe you've loosened up your standards on what is acceptable for your entertainment. Maybe you're watching something now that you would never watch 10 years ago. And you've just relaxed it, relaxed it, relaxed it, relaxed it. And it's not a major sin. Maybe you didn't kill somebody. I hope none of you did. But maybe it's just a million small ones that are just kind of piling up and you've neglected the discipline of repentance. And now God seems kind of distant and your joy in him? ah. Now, I'm not saying this is going to solve all your problems, but that's why I bring this before you. Thomas Watson he mentioned a bunch of different reasons why to repent for believers alone. And here's some of the, his list. And I put this in modern English so we can all understand it. Repent of your morality or your civility. Now, not, not, not that you should repent for being a good citizen. But what he means by that is repent for trusting in that and thinking, I'm okay because I do these good things. Repent of your hypocrisy making yourself look holy on the outside only. Repent of your legalism and your holier-than-thou attitude. Repent of your vain thoughts and cultivating a love for sin. Repent of your waning love for God and your indifference to his glory. 
Repent of your refusal to steward the good gifts bestowed upon you. Repent of your complaining and resistance to God's blessings in your life. life. Repent of your worldliness and your conformity to this world. Repent of your divisions within the church and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. It clogs the artery system of our faith so that the lifeblood cannot flow as it should. And I also want to urge us to beware of fatalism. You know what fatalism is? Fatalism is the idea of, oh, you know what? I'm never going to be as good as David. I'm never going to have feelings like David. So I, you know what? I, I give up. I can't feel that way, so forget it. That's fatalism. Don't say, David, he was very sorrowful because he had a huge sin in his life. This is a life-defining moment for David. That's true. That's true. I agree. But we shouldn't say, well, David, you know, he was sorrowful just because he had this big sin in his life, and you know what? I don't have that kind of sorrow, so I'll just have to kind of wait, sit tight and wait patiently until God gives me that kind of remorse. But until then, I can't really do much about it. I don't want you to have that attitude. That's the wrong attitude to have. That is the wrong attitude to have. What should you do if you don't really feel any godly remorse for sin? And I think there's a whole other sermon here, and I need to wrap this up. You're like, yeah, you do. But let me just say this. You have to pursue it. Again, one last quote from Thomas Watson. A true penitent labors to work his heart into a sorrowing frame. You have to make that part of your spiritual discipline. You have to make that part of your life of faith. You have to, if you don't have the right remorse for sin, you have to work towards it. How do I work towards that? That's an emotion. How do I feel something when I don't, don't feel it? It's a gift from God. There's no doubt about it. Let me just offer a couple of things so you can hang your hat on. Number one, find somebody in your life and confess. Confess your sin and confess your lack of sorrow. Hey, you know what? This and this has been going on. Here's the reality of it. Here's the reality of what's going on with me. And you know, here's the other thing. I don't really feel all that remorseful about it. Confess that. Confess your, your lack of sorrow. Confess your lack of or your indifference to God's glory. Get vulnerable with somebody that you trust. Number two, discipline yourself to put God's truth and God's beauty before you. Philippians 4a talks about whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is worthy of praise, make it a habit to put God's beauty in front of you. Ideally, in place of the ugliness, perhaps. And discipline yourself to say, to put off and to put on. I act in anger. I need help with anger. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to respond that way in this situation. Somebody help me with that. 
put that off and start walking in the direction that you should by faith that God will give you the feelings and the emotions that you need. And that it will happen down the road. Maybe not today, but down the road you'll experience those emotions. And number three, beg God, as David begs God, for a clean heart and renewed a right spirit within me. Beg God for the gift of tears and beg him until you get them. Ask him every day, God, let me feel the ugliness of sin. Let me see the beauty of your glory. Let me live for your glory. Create in me, O oh God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your, your word to us. I pray, God, that this was your word, not mine. And I ask, God, that as it lands, that what you would want to speak to us and the way that you want to shape us and form us, that you would do that. Whatever is not of you, Lord, I pray that would fall away. And I ask, Lord, that whatever is of you would stick and stick into our hearts, that this would be received not as condemnation, but as an invitation an invitation to pursue you and find all of our joy in you. Teach us true repentance so that we would know you and that we would have our place in your kingdom to teach sinners in your ways. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you instruct even us, sinners, that you take us and you mold us and you transform us in Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.